I appreciate the vote of confidence in a Zoom call that you think I'm wearing pants. Out of frame, who's to say? <laughs> Welcome, fellow sleuths, to Meddling Adults, a game show where we grab our quarters and go head-to-head to test our wits against the prowess of fictional young detectives for charity. I'm your host, Mike Schubert. I am notoriously bad at solving children's mysteries, which is why I'm safely behind the judges' table, letting others duke it out instead. Our contestants this week are Sarah Shackett and Zach Valenti from Long Story Short Productions. Sarah and Zach, how's it going? It's going well. Woo! I'm very excited to have you two on the show. I had Gabrielle on in season one, and now we're rounding out the long story short triumvirate, if you will. So, Sarah, what charity are you playing for today? So I'm playing for the Okra Project. It is a phenomenal service that employs Black trans chefs to go cook food for Black trans folks in communities. And it's great. That's wonderful. Zach, how about you? The Innocence Project. This is a organization, a nonprofit whose mission is freeing folks who are innocent and remain incarcerated. And they're using genetic evidence and other things to free them. We have a fucked up criminal justice system, y'all. And uh, they're doing some good work. Fucked up to say the least. And they are definitely doing great work. Well, these are both great organizations. I'm very excited for one of them to win. But only one can win because this is a contest. (laughs) So (laughs) here is how the contest works. I will be recapping four quick mysteries from the esteemed children's novel, Encyclopedia Brown. Neither of you have read these mysteries ahead of time. I will lay out all the clues. I will ask for your accusations and each correct guess will earn you points. There's also bonus points at stake. Whether you have a particularly wild guess or you make fun of each other really well, you tell a good pun, whatever floats your boat and floats mine as well, will get you some bonus points. At the end of the four rounds, if it is tied, we will do a sudden death riddle, but we'll see if it even comes to that. Now, do either of you have any sort of experience with mystery novels? Is that something you read as a kid or no? I was like, like a red wall child. So I have some riddle expertise, but like I never did any of the child uh, mystery solvers. Mm, well, maybe you'll just be a natural. Zach, do you have any sort of experience with it? I suspect that you will, Sarah. I'm <laughs> only a little bit terrified over here. I definitely had my fair share of Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Okay, so we have one experienced and one newcomer. Seasoned veteran. Yeah, this will just be <laughs> that much more embarrassing for Zach if he loses. Going on my resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the true test of experience versus versus just pure, raw, unyielded talent from Sarah. (laughs) That's another way to put it. Yeah, for sure. So let's get into our very first mystery of the show, which is the case of the worn out sayings. Oh, no. I think the cats got their tongue. Oh, yes. Boom. Okay. (laughs) Bonus point for Zach right there. Right off the bat, he is already on the right trail. I like this game. (laughs) You will very much enjoy this particular mystery. So Encyclopedia Brown gets a phone call from Max Corrigan, who needs help. He tells Encyclopedia to meet him at the corner of Maple and Main, which is the Smith and Johnson of street names. Mm-hmm. Max has a stand set up at the corner where he has a bunch of reference books and he charges five to 15 cents each for quote, all kinds of information, which I guess in 1965, you have to do. He's basically physical Siri for the town. Yeah, no, that is about what you're paid to create content on the internet. So this tracks. <laughs> 
Oh, man. A depressing one bonus point to Sarah as well. (laughs) At least he's getting paid for it. It's not like, here's a bunch of information. It'll be great exposure for you. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) He keeps it free. He just, like, takes the demographic information of everyone that he... That's a question. <laughs> so Max is in the middle of telling Encyclopedia Brown that he wants to quit this job because it's just too dangerous on this particular corner when someone pulls up and asks him for directions. So he pulls out this big map, he consults the map, tells this person where to go, and then he asks if they need anything else. And the person says, you know, I've always wanted to know where the latissimus dorsi is. So he consults a copy of Grey's Anatomy, which I only recently learned is an actual book and not just a dramatic television show based in Seattle. And he tells the man where it is. Now, for a bonus point, do either of you know where the latissimus dorsi is on your body? I know about dorsal fins, so I'm kind of thinking like spine butt area, but I could be very wrong about that. No, you are correct. It's like the big back muscle that kind of connects the below your shoulder to the center of your spine. So bonus point for Sarah for using dorsal fins. (laughs) Shout out to Latin and knowing (laughs) knowing where that muscle just might be. So the score's now two to one. I just need to submit a formal apology to my mother, the muscular therapist. I've let you down and besmirched your honor. I will do better. (laughs) She's driving in her car right now, skirts off the side of the road. Zach! Zachary, how dare you? Have I told you nothing? (laughs) Encyclopedia Brown then asks, why is this so dangerous that you need to leave? And Max says, worn out sayings. So here we go. This mystery has so many worn out sayings in it that I feel like it was either a bet, kind of like how Dr. Seuss wrote Green Eggs and Ham on a bet that he couldn't write a book using only 50 words. I think that this is something where either Donald J. Sobel, the author of Encyclopedia Brown, got a complaint that they used too many worn out sayings or someone bet him because there are so many sayings that they use and I have written down every single one. Oh, amazing. So Max says to Encyclopedia Brown, quote, you'll understand you're bright as a button, not to mention smart as a whip. So Max explains that his uncle sent him a newspaper clipping from an Alaskan newspaper. And this Alaskan newspaper is having a contest to see who can send in the most worn out sayings such as flat as a pancake and high as a kite. So Max cut out this particular contest from the page of the newspaper and wrote in print Alaska Times page 31 on the top of it. So he remembered what the newspaper was and where it came from. He put this newspaper clipping on his table, and then he continued just reading the rest of the newspaper for leisure in between customers at his information, physical Ask Jeeves, if you will. Right. (laughs) So Bugs Meany, the town bully, shows up. He saw the clipping. He steals it because he wants to enter the contest on his own. So Max wants Encyclopedia Brown to go get that clipping back for him because this is 1965 and I guess he can't look it up. He doesn't know where to send this list of worn out sayings because the address was on this clipping. Right. And there's only one copy of the Alaska Times that makes its way down. (laughs) They are in fictional Florida. So it is, I guess, the farthest state, unless Hawaii Hawaii, is farther. Or I think there's some shenanigans where like there are tiny islands of Alaska that go way off to the side. I feel like in middle school, I speaking of riddles, there was some riddle that Alaska is technically either the most eastern or the most southern state because they have some island that goes way the hell off. It's something obnoxious that you wouldn't predict. One of the directions on a compass that doesn't make sense, Alaska is that. Fun fact. I'm just going to Google it just to see. Alaska most eastern? 
Here's an interesting tidbit of trivia, according to thoughtco.com. Alaska is the state that is the farthest north, east, and west. The reason Alaska can be considered the farthest, both east and west, is the Aleutian Islands cross the 180-degree meridian of longitude. Oh, so they go so far west... That they come back. That they come back around and are east? Yeah. I get it. That makes more sense than the islands somehow going all the way... <laughs> Fast Maine. <laughs> you could start your own encyclopedia corner stand. <laughs> so Encyclopedia Brown says, come on, let's go confront bugs. Max is afraid of bugs because he beats people up. He wants to stay behind, but Encyclopedia says, come on, let's go. Just be brave as a lion and cool as a cucumber. So when they show up at the Tigers Clubhouse, Bugs is the head of the Tigers, the local gang of ruffian boys around town. Max sees the newspaper clipping pinned on a corkboard on the wall and yells at Bugs that he stole it. Bugs says, stole? You're as crazy as a bed bug, which I don't think is a idiom. I don't think that's anything. No, that's trying too hard. <laughs> he says, I bought the paper from you. I've lived my life clean as a whistle and as good as gold. Says Bugs Meanie. <laughs> Says Bugs Meanie, who at least five times in Encyclopedia Brown book tries to screw someone over. And will do so later in this episode of Meddling Adults. Oh, excellent. Now, wait, just what, what, is, what is this clubhouse that they're in? This is some like hell's angel den of <laughs> sin. Like, So the Tigers, the local gang of boys around town, their clubhouse is an abandoned tool shed behind one of the auto body shops in Idaville. So I guess it's just the more grungy version of having a treehouse that they all hang out in. I smell an imaginary Florida man. <laughs> so Encyclopedia Brown says, and you never paid for anything you could steal. You're as tight as a drum and crooked as a dog's hind leg. <laughs> Definitely this was a bet. <laughs> yeah, I think it has to be. So Encyclopedia Brown asks what Bugs would want with an Alaskan newspaper anyway. And Bugs says that he didn't know it was from Alaska until after he bought it. He says, quote, I saw this kid reading the story on the last page of the newspaper. I saw the contest and I wanted the contest. So I cut it out. I marked the page and I tacked it on the wall. Us Tigers are going to win $500. That's a lot of money. Yeah, $500 in 1965 is a lot. You could go to college. I'm going to my favorite website, which is the United States Bureau of Labor and Statistics. And $500 in 1965 today is $4,112. Get that five hundo. Damn. Like, can you imagine a newspaper being like, yeah, send in some old jokes and stuff and we'll give you $4,000. This is clearly why newspapers failed. If they yeah, were right, right, right. <laughs> of that kind of a margin. <clears throat> For like 40 years. Right. The internet just finished what their contest started. So Max and Bugs exchange insults, which ends in Bugs threatening to beat Max up. So he says, quote, I'm leaving quiet as a mouse and quick as lightning. And Encyclopedia Brown says, we're not going anywhere until we get what we came for. Bugs, you stole the clipping and that's as clear as day. So I turn to you two. How did Encyclopedia Brown know that Bugs Meanie was lying? Well, one, because he was cool as a cucumber and <laughs> courageous as a lion. You know, I think that there's a je ne sais quoi in a Meanie's eyes. I don't know if it's genetic or just behavioral, but <laughs> I just suspect that the air of assholery gave him away. Can you repeat what Bugs' story was? Because I feel like Encyclopedia Brown would pick up on an inconsistency in this budding Florida man's <laughs> tale. So Bugs says... I saw this kid reading the last page with the story of the contest on it. I wanted the story, cut it out, marked the page, and tacked it on the wall. Was it not on the, the last page? Because 
Max cut it out and then continued reading the paper. Mm. Okay, well, Sarah is correct. It was not on the last page of the newspaper. Uh. So the actual reasoning is that what he wrote down was Alaskan Times, page 31. And the way a newspaper works, the last page would be an even number because it would be on the back of a page. So it would have to be an even number, and that is the solution. I thought it was because if he was reading the back page, then Encyclopedia Brown would have had to have been standing behind him, Mm. and I thought that didn't make any sense. So I was close, but I was trying to use more of the, if he was reading the newspaper, Bugs would have had to have been creepily looking behind his shoulder if it was the last page, and I just found that to be unbelievable. (laughs) Well, I mean, believable for Bugs meaning, potentially. True. So at the end of the first mystery, Sarah has a five-to-one lead as we go into our next case, the case of the skunk ape. I gotta step it up. (laughs) Oh boy. So Gus Sarmiento enters the detective agency and the narrator describes him as, quote, his mouth was open wide enough to swallow a watermelon sideways. Wow, that's great. (laughs) Incredible visual. So Gus is the best cellist in Idaville. He used to play the violin, but because of his flat feet, he made the switch to cello because it's played sitting down. And I do love this explanation of, I'm very good at the violin, but I'm very bad at standing, so I must switch the instrument I play. Also, don't violinists sit in an orchestra? Like I guess, but I guess there's other situations where they stand. Maybe if he's trying to play in the Idaville Mariachi? Yeah, maybe this is like a line dancing situation. Oh, yeah, it's a southern two-stepping band. (laughs) (laughs) It's Florida. Anything is possible. So Gus comes in screaming, I saw it, the skunk ape. It reached into my bedroom window. The narrator clarifies that the skunk ape was Idaville's abominable snowman. It is supposedly half man and half ape. And I was wondering where the skunk comes into play, but apparently it smells very bad. Oh boy. And that's where the skunk portion comes in. (laughs) That tracks. Now, this may seem confusing, but once you remember that this does take place in fictional Florida, this makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I would imagine a smelly Bigfoot would live in Florida. (laughs) A smelly Sasquatch and Asquatch, if you will. Oh no. (laughs) One point to shoot. Bonus point for Mike. Mike is on the board. (laughs) So Sally Kimball, who is Encyclopedia Brown, junior partner. She is perfect. She's the prettiest girl in town. She's also the strongest girl in town. She's also one of the best athletes in town. And she's a great junior detective assistant for Encyclopedia Brown. She doesn't believe in skunk apes at all. Or she's the scully figure. Yes. I do know that the X-Files exists (laughs) and I've never seen an episode. So she asks Gus, oh, did you smell it? And he says that he smelled the carpet afterwards and it smelled terrible. He says that a hairy arm reached into the window and grabbed his empty cello case. And Sally says, ha, a musical skunk ape. Now this I want to see. So she wants to go immediately to investigate the situation. Interesting. Hairy arm through the window. I got to go there. Said not me. (laughs) I mean, you're on the same line of thinking of Encyclopedia Brown who, not out loud, but the narrator notes that he wishes Sally wasn't so brave all the time because he's a little bit scared. (laughs) But he can't let Sally see this, so they go over to Gus's place. 
So Gus shows them the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. Mm -hmm. And he mentions that he always practices the cello in his room from two o'clock to three o'clock every day. So Sally then asks, hey, doesn't Wilma Hutton live nearby? She plays the cello and she's Bugs Meanie's cousin, which makes her an instant suspect. Mm -hmm. Wilma Hutton. Wilma Hutton, which you will learn she is as fancy as her name would suggest. So they go to her house and they see a cello case near some trees beside the garage of Wilma's house. That's the natural place where you keep cello cases outside by a garage. Yeah, you know, it's just in case anyone wants to steal what I can only assume is a very expensive instrument. Incredibly expensive instrument, yeah. So Gus goes over, lifts up the case, and once he grabs it, Wilma, who is showing to be very prim and proper, comes running up, and the narrator describes her as, quote, taking tripping little steps due to her tight skirt. And the illustration in the book has her wearing this fancy-looking pencil skirt and this nice sweater, and she's got on a necklace and one of those belts over a sweater. You know someone's fancy when they're wearing a belt for fashion and not for function? Yeah. She's got a big bracelet on. She has these fancy loafers. She is very fancy schmance person. All right. Dressed to impress. I get it. Yeah. So she is running and screaming, police, police, and then out from the front door of her house, comes Bugs Meany and Officer Carlson, who is not the brightest lamp in the living room. There are multiple times across the series where he is tricked by Bugs Meany or other tigers across town where it's a common theme of Bugs Meany trying to catch Encyclopedia Brown in a tricky situation and then have accomplices lie to make him look guilty. And Officer Carlson falls for this every time. And I don't understand why he listens to Bugs Meany, who at least once a day, I would assume, is caught in some sort of scheme. But that's Officer Carlson for you. Oh, boy. Officer Carlson just knows who he trusts which is a problem that there's no sort of oversight or accountability for Officer Carlson. <laughs> nope, none at all. So Wilma screams, there's your skunk ape officer. As I came running up, they hid the costume in that cello case. Sally screams, that's a dirty lie. And all Officer Carlson has to offer is, better open the case, Gus. So thanks, officer. So Gus opens it and inside is a absolutely rotten smelling ape costume and bug says oh what died in there and sally says your brain this is a frame up <laughs> i love sally <laughs> she is perfect <laughs> bugs retorts may a giant clam bite your nose with his fists clenched and sally then says may a sandbag fall on your head that's a great insult i just love these 1965 insults we got to bring it back they're so wholesome i love them instead of cursing let's do this just wishing very specific pain upon people. May a sandbag fall on your head. I hope you stub your toe in a doorway. <laughs> I hope you drop a ceramic mug. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. The sadness. I'm going to give a point for that because I could visualize that happening. <laughs> so Carlson tells them to cool it. He explains that Bugs told him that the skunk ape had been bothering Wilma for days. So he was coming over to the house to check things out, keep her safe, etc. Bugs says Wilma can't take this. She is an artist, so she's already high strung. Uh, nice. Oh, boy. <laughs> and Sally calls BS, saying Wilma is 17 years old, so why should she be afraid of such a silly urban legend? 
She says that Bugs is just trying to get even with her and Encyclopedia Brown because Sally has beaten up Bugs Meanie in the past and Encyclopedia Brown is always thwarting Bugs Meanie's evil plans. So Sally is the best is the takeaway of the story. Yes. Basic summary is we all love Sally Kimball and she's a perfect human. So Carlson asks if the case is Gus's and he says it looks like mine, but... So do a lot of cases, which I think is very astute that all instrument cases kind of have that same black, roughly leather, gold latch vibe. And I appreciate that coming up in this story. Wilma insists that the case is not hers. And as proof, she goes over to the trunk of her car and pulls out a cello case and says that she was in Glen City, a neighboring town, playing cello. When she arrived home, she saw these three near the trees with the costume in hand, and they were shoving the costume into the case, and they rushed and finished to do it once they saw her. Sally says that she knows Bugs and Wilma are lying, but she just can't prove it. And Encyclopedia Brown says, don't worry, I can. So I turn to you two. How does Encyclopedia Brown know that they are lying? She was coming back from Glen City, and we don't know the distances there. So I don't know that that... No, we don't know that. All we know is that Glen City is a bus ride away. So conceivably, you do have to take your car to get there. I'm resisting uh, if the glove don't fit joke, Ah. but I I don't know that there's anything in the text that would suggest, other than that she's like very primly dressed, that would suggest she or Bugs were were in the costume instead. Because I assume one of them took Gus's cello because... That is what I'm assuming. To be fair, it is just the case. They didn't steal his cello. They stole his empty case while he was playing the cello. Cool, cool. Zach, do you have any sort of postulation? (sighs) Boy, I mean, I'm definitely not going to go with good old, uh, they seem shifty. (laughs) This is the best I got, and I don't know that it's right. But is it she couldn't, like, get to them quickly enough in her tight little skirt? Okay, that's an option. Mm Mm-hmm. What about you, Zach? Tripping little steps definitely feels like an important detail, but this is probably wrong, you guys. <laughs> but I'm a skunk egg truther here, <laughs> and I think that this is just a massive cover-up for the actual organism that is living in this town. I think that Wilma is probably working for the Skunk Ape Ooh. Conservatory. <laughs> okay. I'm definitely giving Zach a bonus point for the Skunk Ape is real <laughs> and <laughs> Wilma's in on it. But the correct answer, Sarah, you were close. The short skirt is the giveaway, but what it is, is that if she was playing cello in her current outfit, she would be sitting in a short oh. skirt, which is something that you can't really do if you're performing the cello would have to be either pants or a long skirt. Otherwise, you are putting on more than just a a cello show, if you will. Indeed. Right, or you're a pop icon in 2020. (laughs) This is also a very 1965 answer of a (laughs) hall. Well, you couldn't possibly play anything in a short skirt. By the way, my new musical act where I play cello cello in a short skirt is coming on YouTube later this year. (laughs) (laughs) Will you accompany it by wearing a long jacket and eating cake? (laughs) No, no, just upper half of a smelly ape suit. (laughs) That's even better. So we go into our third mystery, the case of the window dressers with the score Sarah leads six to two. As I suspected. <laughs> hey, you you reduced the deficit just a bit. I will say the rest of these mysteries all have to deal with fashion. And I love that by complete accident, fashion played a role in pretty much every mystery in this episode. It makes me very happy. That's excellent. So Encyclopedia Brown and Sally are shopping in a department store when Sally warns Encyclopedia Brown that he's about to be charged by a bull. Cool. Is it a china shop? It's funny you mention it because the narrator <laughs> says, quote, Encyclopedia Brown had heard of a bull in a china shop, but never in women's sportswear. And I legitimately laughed out loud when I was reading this. <laughs> that is gold. 
So it turns out that it is a paper mache bowl, and it's just a whole mess of people carrying this paper mache bowl and other stuff. So let me give you the rundown of all of the people that are here. First, we have a man holding a paper mache bowl head. Behind him, we have four women holding the rest of the paper mache bowl. We then have two men holding bullfighter costumes, a man with a poster of a bullfight, three men holding women mannequins, naked women mannequins. As you do. Normal, as you normal. do. And then there's one man holding several petticoats and one woman holding a clothes brush. So Encyclopedia Brown asks the last woman, the one with the clothes brush, what is happening? And she says that they are setting up a window dressing, kind of those window mm-hmm. shopping displays in the department store. And it is all going to be Torador themed because they are displaying a new line of Torador pants. And I, as well as Encyclopedia Brown, goes, Torador pants? Who wears those in Idaville? And Sally goes, oh, you boys. Torador pants for women are very big this season. They're styled after pants worn by bullfighters. And I Googled it. This was a legitimate trend in 1965. That's amazing. Torador is in right now. (laughs) I was just about to be like, oh, they're colorful and like they kind of hug your hips. Like, sure, but... (laughs) Basically, from Googling, they are not full-fledged, at least the fashion ones that became a thing in 1965. They're not full-fledged, like, the ones that are really tight and then bunch up at the knee. They are basically, like, 1965 capris. Uh, That makes sense. But a little shorter. So they're a little baggier around the thigh, but they come more to a point below the knee. They do look really cool. And from the designs from these old 1965 ads I saw, they do come in a lot of fun, vibrant colors. So this was a legitimate fashion trend that I... I think is due to come back. The more you know. That's great. So the narrator says, quote, Encyclopedia Brown had never seen a bullfight or a display window being dressed. So he said to Sally, let's go watch. (laughs) (laughs) So they go over and they are trying to see the window being set up from inside the store. But there are a lot of adults around this display looking at it. So it's hard to see. Just to get this straight. So a la Macy's Around the Holidays. This department store is putting together a live action window display to push their products to the point that they've employed not two, but three people to play the bull alone (laughs) and then have like a whole scene in just one window. I do love the thought, and Zach will be getting a bonus point for thinking that this is a Lunar New Year style dragon celebration of a fully interactive (laughs) carried bull, but I do think it's just a very large paper mache bull that requires four people to move it. I see, I see. But I think once it's in the display, it is stationary. Okay. (laughs) Like, like is this just like all day people just like bullfighting. <laughs> Again, this is why the department stores fail. They're employing people to be display window bulls. Gosh, the expenses of these businesses. I know. So it's like the Petey Brad and Sally go to watch and they see their friend Red Hufflinger. Oh my gosh, that's a great name. Outside the store <laughs> window watching. And Encyclopedia Brown says, ah, Red's got the right idea. We should go outside to get a better view. And they see that his eyes are crossed, which they find very strange. But before they can try to figure out what he is up to, gunshots ring out in the store. Jesus, Florida. Yeah. 
So Encyclopedia Brown screams, hit the floor, and does so, covers his head. And once things calm down, he notices that Sally is gone. And outside, Red is laying on the ground on the sidewalk. So he rushes over to make sure Red didn't get shot. Oh, my God. He asks Red if he's okay. Red says, yeah, did you see who fired those gunshots? And Encyclopedia Brown says, I was hoping that you could since you were looking in the store. And he says, I wasn't looking in. I was counting. And he reveals that he was using the window as a mirror to count the freckles on his nose. Oh, Red. He says that, quote, there are 205 freckles on my nose with the rest on my cheeks, chin, and forehead. That makes 2,470. I'm just three short of the championship. This is why people don't like gingers. The the championship. That's very funny, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Idaville has the most absurd contests from worm fiddling to these junior bike races to all of these obnoxious things to freckle counting. Whoever set that contest up, setting up children for skin cancer. For shame. For motherfucking shame. (laughs) It's like the Peter Brown says, ah, just wait till next year. And Red says, yeah, I know I'll be fine because the current champion is 15 and he's over the hill. Pimples are ruining him. Wow. (laughs) Which is just so brutal. Red dreams about winning the contest, the prize of which is a three-day trip to Whispering Hills for two, which I can only assume is some very nice cabin in the Florida wilderness or on the beach or something. But a three-day trip for two just for having a lot of freckles on your face? Like, this inherently takes no skill, and as Zach says could be a sun risk. Just so long as this whole story isn't just from Big Pharma pushing their proactive acne care products, I'm okay with it. Which don't fucking work. No, As someone that did proactive, that shit does not work. It's face sandpaper. Go to a dermatologist. (laughs) Yes, it will cost you more money up front, but you'll save so much money in terms of not having to consistently buy all of that stuff. I'm 28 years old. I still have acne. Go see a dermatologist. Yeah. So Encyclopedia Brown then desperately tries to find Sally while his dad, who's the chief of police, shows up and confirms, thankfully, that no one was hurt. He says that the gunshots were fired just into the ceiling and it was a distraction Uh. so that thieves could rob the jewelry store, which was the store one store over. They stole $100,000 worth of jewelry, which, according to the United States Bureau of Labor and Statistics, is $822,542 today. So they got a lot of jewels. This Idaville Mall is like stacked. I know, like almost a million dollars worth of jewelry in one store. So that happened all during the commotion, and Encyclopedia Brown finally finds Sally, and he is very happy to know that she's okay, and he asks, what were you doing? And Sally says, oh, I was chasing after the gunman. I knew exactly who it was. Encyclopedia Brown says, how? I have no idea. And Sally says, that's because you are a boy. And then I turn to you two. I will say this is a very exciting mystery for me because this is the first time Sally has solved the crime. This is great. Sally's the best. Yeah, further proving the gravitational fact of this universe that Sally is indeed the best. Also, does crime pay? In Idaville, Florida, it seems like it does. (laughs) I was told it doesn't. Except they always do get caught by Encyclopedia Brown. (laughs) If you're willing to, like, endure the humiliation of being caught by a child, like, that's a risk (laughs) worth taking, it seems like. (laughs) So... I turn to you two. How did Sally know exactly who the shooter was? 
Can you run through like the litany of people who were? Yeah, I think it's no secret that it's one of these people in the commotion of the paper mache bull carrying. So here are all of these suspects. There were four women carrying the rest of the bull. There were two men carrying bullfighter costumes. There was one man with a poster of a bullfight. There were three men holding bare women mannequins. There was one man holding several petticoats, and there was one woman holding a clothes brush. It's got to be something about, like, Toreador pants Mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. I guess my guess is that, like, and Sally would know this being the best, they're sort of, like, capri forward fashion you don't need to brush them so maybe the clothes brush woman was superfluous okay okay that's my guess right right just to have a different guess like i'm just wondering like do you really need a sign for a bullfight (laughs) in a window display (laughs) with a bullfight like i'm just wondering like did this guy get the memo and was just like i'm definitely part of this definitely part of this look at look at the sign oh man okay i do love both of these guesses but you're both wrong oh no clearly you're both silly boys the person who was at a place was the man holding several petticoats petticoats are the floofy linings that go under skirts so why the hell would you need those on a bullfighting display when no one is wearing a dress i was thinking that they were like you know the poofy shirts that would go on the mannequin i guess because it's similar to pea coat i thought a petticoat was like a small jacket like a petite coat if you will sure i learned from this mystery that i am also a silly boy yep now skirts have linings and we don't have to deal with that so i'm going to blame the 60s (laughs) my guess was that it was the two men with the bullfighter costumes because there were three mannequins and those people seem legit. So why would there only be two people holding costumes? That felt suspect to me. Mm, Yeah, the numbers do not add up. (laughs) I see, I see. Not at all. So we get into the final mystery and this one is incredibly fashion-centered. This is the case of the silver dollar. (laughs) And it starts off strong. First line in this story, quote verbatim from the book. Chauncey Van Throckmorton was the best-dressed boy in Idaville. (laughs) Wow. So this is just a very fancy boy. He has clothes for every occasion. The narrator even says that he puts on a horse-riding outfit when he plays horseshoes, which I love. Wow. Is he wearing a helmet when he's playing horseshoes? Because I would love that even more. I can only hope. It's just so funny. Like, you invite your friend over, hey, do you want to play this basketball video game? And they show up in a full basketball outfit. Uh (laughs) So... He shows up in the detective agency only wearing a green towel. Oh, no. So Encyclopedia Brown knows something Something is wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So Encyclopedia Brown screams, Chauncey, no wonder I didn't hear you approach. And Chauncey says, what are you talking about? And Encyclopedia Brown notes, and the narrator clarifies this, that in addition to always wearing fancy clothes, Chauncey's classic signature item is that he always has a big silver dollar in his pocket and with the other change in his pocket it rattles around and makes a lot of noise so this boy is known for carrying a silver dollar and wearing fancy clothes so encyclopedia brown clarifies he knows something is wrong because quote towels aren't exactly in style for streetwear (laughs) chauncey says that he didn't want to wear this he had to given his situation so he says that he made the mistake of talking smack to lindy lou duckworth oh so Sally then asks, isn't she the seventh grader who is putting together a girls football team? So Lindy Lou Duckworth is great. Love her. Chauncey confirms and he says, quote, the girls practice twice a week at South Park. I went there in my new sports jacket to watch. 
but I ended up running for my life. Oh boy. So he explains that while he was at the park, Lindy Lou came over to him saying that the girls were a player short and they needed someone to fill in. And he says to her, quote, I told her that she had only 40 cards in her deck if she thought I was going to get my clothes dirty. I mean, that seems fair. Tackling a bunch of girls. I mean, I can sympathize with not getting clothes dirty as someone that has fancy boy clothes. I have been known to wear one pair of shoes to the park and then bring a different pair of shoes in my backpack so that once I set up my blanket and stuff, I can change into more fashionable shoes that I don't want to get grassy and dirty. So like I can see Chauncey's claim here, but maybe not be fresh mouthed with someone who wants to start a football team because she's quite strong. I don't know what she expected when she asked this fancy boy, but hey. So Chauncey said that she got very mad, socked him in the face, and then while he was still dizzy from the punch, dragged him into the woods, oh my God. called him a stuck up fancy pants, made him undress, <gasps> and then asked him if he thought he was still so high and mighty. That's very traumatic. Yeah. Did she then start waterboarding him? <laughs> like, what the fuck? But then he says that he let his legs do the thinking and he <laughs> ran away. And Sally goes, naked? And he says, of course not. I had on these green shoes and socks and blue underwear. It was embarrassing. And so Encyclopedia Brown says, oh, I understand. And he goes, no, you don't. I could have passed for a long distance runner. I looked fine. But green with blue, the colors, uh. ugh. They clash. It took me a while before I found a nice green towel hanging on a clothesline. I kind of like a fashionista who's like, they don't go well together, <laughs> but they feel so right. No one will know. <laughs> and no one will see. <laughs> so Sally says to him, you have wonderful taste. And the book says, it's nothing, replied Chauncey. But I do imagine him kind of doing the thing where you play it off like, oh, it's nothing, and kind of putting it on display a little bit. That's how I'm living in this fiction here. A hundred percent. So Chauncey says he wants help. He says Lindy Lou Duckworth is some kind of monster. Sally, rightfully so, comes to Lindy Lou's defense, says, no, she's not. You're just jealous because she's strong, but we will help you anyway. Sally is the best. Sally is the best. So Encyclopedia loans Chauncey his best shirt and pants, and they head over towards South Park. On the way, they return the green towel, which makes me very happy since he did steal it from someone's house. So that's good. I hope they let them know, hi, my sweaty butt was on your towel. You should watch it again. So they approach Lindy Lou and they ask her, hey, did you do this whole thing where you beat up Chauncey? And Lindy Lou says that, no, I don't hit sissies. <gasps> and she is described as having the broadest shoulders on the field. And she has shoulders so broad that she's not wearing shoulder pads like the rest of the football players, which I do think is fun. <laughs> no wonder Chauncey jealous. His jackets would look so much better if he didn't need shoulder pads. He definitely wears jackets with shoulder pads. But like, we're all in agreement on that. <laughs> oh, 100%. So Encyclopedia asks what happened. She says that Chauncey was standing around watching them practice rattling his silver dollar. And Encyclopedia Brown says, hey, how'd you know it was a silver dollar? And Lindy Lou says, who doesn't know? Everyone knows that Chauncey has this silver dollar. He was making so much noise that I asked him to leave. That's when he took off his clothes. And she says that Chauncey told her that he wanted to do some laps around the field to get some exercise in, but he didn't want to get them sweaty. So he left his clothes in a pile on the sidelines of the field and then ran around, and she says that she moved and folded them so that they could continue practicing. No one touched them except for me, so don't you dare say that they are wrinkled. So Encyclopedia Brown says Chauncey to go over and check all of the pockets. Chauncey emptied every pocket, 
out comes a handkerchief, a sample of tan material for a new suit, the silver dollar, and a leather wallet. Now, Chauncey says that from his leather wallet, $5 is missing, and he says that he also had 80 cents in his pocket, which is now missing as well. He claims that Lindy Lou robbed him. And Encyclopedia Brown says, hey, don't make these accusations unless you know this for sure. You might make her mad. (laughs) But Chauncey insists that he didn't just drop these clothes. This whole story of him taking them off to go running is false. He says that a lot of the football players had to have seen her drag him into the woods. Encyclopedia Brown tells him, yeah, they'll agree with whatever Lindy Lou says, but we don't need witnesses. They protect their own. Yeah, she's part of the football players union, I guess. (laughs) But Encyclopedia Brown says, I know who's lying. So I turn to you two. How does Encyclopedia Brown know that either Chauncey or Lindy Lou is lying about this story? Well, it's not Chauncey because it's previously established he was mortified to run in clashing socks and underwear. Is it the coins? Because, like, if he had loose change and the silver dollar, that would have made noise. But Mm. just the silver dollar was left in the pocket. Mm. Zach, do you have a guess? That was where my mind went, because... You can't make noise with one coin, much like the sound of one hand clapping. It's just uh, not much. I have to side with Chauncey if it's just between the two of them. But I wonder if there's like some Rashomon in here where like... What were they really doing in the woods? Yeah, that's right. She doesn't seem like the kick your ass type, but I, I don't know. That could just be me projecting. Well, I will say you are both correct. It is the whole change making noise situation, especially... What puts her in a guilty position is that she said she was the only one to touch the clothes. So that means she's the only person who could have taken the change. There would have been no other witness. So you're both correct. I did give Zach an extra bonus point for saying Rashomon. Uh, so that, that is pretty fun there for you. My incorrect guess, I thought because the way it was brought up at the end where it didn't say definitively that Encyclopedia Brown knew that Lindy Lou was lying, I was like, this is strange wording. I feel like Chauncey has to be guilty in some way. So I went way too hard and I overthought it thinking he was guilty. The fact that he said that she dragged him to the forest, I really thought that he would have also complained about getting grass stains on his pants. So that felt weird for him to not mention that as something making him upset if she really did. So it made me think that the whole story was a lie. But no, it was just a change in the pocket. I drastically overthought it. But that is our final mystery. Sarah, you have won this episode. Nine to seven. You have earned some money for the Okra Project. How does it feel to emerge victorious? It feels great. More that like we have spent this time and made Rashomon jokes. I love nothing more in the world. (laughs) Seriously, this was delightful. Zach, you fought valiantly. You really came back with some bonus points to make it close, which was very fun. Great effort. Sarah just edged you out. But thank you two so much for joining. You two are working on a very exciting new podcast coming up. Do you want to tell people about that? We would love to. Uh, Yeah, we are working on a new fantasy series. It's called Unseen. The first season is going to be a set of interconnected stories that are all set in a magical universe. We are in the last week of our Kickstarter for that show, and the scripts are definitely written, and they're definitely good. Uh, They definitely don't still need to be written. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. If people want to check stuff out there, where can they do so? Where on the internet can they go? You can head on over to www.unseen.show to check out our rewards, get yourself something sweet, and help us reach our 
ridiculously stretchy stretch goals, <laughs> thanks to the incredible groundswell of support from our amazing fans. Yeah. Yeah. I think by the time this comes out, the Kickstarter will be done, but you can still learn about the show at unseen.show. And if you're listening to this way in the future, you could probably listen to the podcast at unseen.show. Ah. All true facts. Awesome. Well, Sarah and Zach, thank you so much for joining on. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. And I got to say, you two held your own with all of these fashion-based crimes. You did pretty well for yourself. And I guess that's because you're just a couple of two, I can only assume, dressed very well in Torador pants, meddling adults. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Meddling Adults. Meddling Adults is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schubert. Today's episode was edited by Brandon Grugel. The art is by Ma'ayan Atias and Kelly Schubert. The music is by Bettina Campamanes and Brandon Grugel. And the web design is by me and Kelly Schubert. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Meddling Adults, as well as reddit.com slash r slash Meddling Adults. And we also have our website, meddlingadults.com. To support the show and get access to some bonus clips, you can go to patreon.com slash Meddling Adults. And another way to help the show is simply tell someone about it, whether you reach out to someone directly or leave a rating and review online or just tweet about it or post about it somewhere, all of those truly help. So thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode next Wednesday.